Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, January the 15th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. Iowa caucuses, why do Iowa voters get the first say? It's written by Will Weissert and Steve Peoples of the Associated Press. Iowa assumed its position as the state that votes first for a presidential nominee more than 50 years ago. But its 1972 caucuses didn't feel very historic. Two folding tables at state Democratic Party headquarters were enough to accommodate all staff and media present. No TV cameras rolled. Results from around the state trickled in on two phone lines because the party didn't want to pay for a third. Just one person, a then 25-year-old anti-Vietnam veteran, Vietnam War activist, who helped engineer the Iowa caucuses, did the counting. I did borrow a memory calculator to speed up the process, recalled Richard Bender, now 78 years old, with a laugh. That was state-of-the-art. We did not have any clue how big this was going to get, he said. So big that the Iowa caucuses became an entrenched part of U.S. politics and launched some unexpected candidates toward the White House. In 1976, Iowa propelled former governor Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter, the little-known one-time peanut farmer. In 2008, the state gave Illinois Senator Barack Obama his first win over Hillary Clinton, one of the most storied names in Democratic politics. But when Iowa's Republican caucuses start the 2024 election process on Monday, the way voters begin choosing the two major parties' nominees will look different. The order in which states vote has changed. So have some of the rules. It's a sign of our tumultuous politics and also how the two frontrunners, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, have moved party levers to give themselves an advantage at times sowing chaos and confusion. The way that presidential nominees are selected has changed significantly over the years and hasn't always involved the will of the voters. For decades during the 1900s, the process was dominated by state and local party bosses, giving rise to the notion of the smoke-filled room where top leaders were said to huddle secretly to determine their presidential candidate. That legend began with the Republican Convention of 1920, when party leaders met secretly in a three-room suite at the still-operating Blackstone Hotel in Chicago, and Warren G. Harding emerged as the party's surprise presidential nominee. The party machine model continued until the bloody 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, when police clashed with street protesters, including students opposing the Vietnam War. Democrats later said the chaotic scenes contributed to Republican Richard Nixon's subsequent victory. As a result, the Democrats created a commission seeking to empower women, minority voters, and young people in selecting their presidential nominee. The post-1968 Democratic reforms had a lasting effect on Iowa. New party rules required more time to pass between the state's party's four tiers of conventions, which ranged from local to statewide. That forced Iowa's Democratic leaders to start the process earlier in the calendar. When it became clear Iowa's caucuses could move ahead of New Hampshire, where the primary had kicked off presidential voting for decades, officials jumped at the chance. We finagled a little bit, Bender recalled. In January of 1972, the corn-producing state tucked within America's heartland hosted the Democratic Party's opening presidential contest for the first time. Republicans followed four years later. 
Voters today weigh in on who should be the major party's general election candidates through a series of contests held over the first half of the year. Candidates accumulate delegates, those people who will formally select the nominee at the party's national conventions this summer, based on state-level performance, using complex rules that vary by party and place. Officially, neither party will have a nominee until a candidate wins the number of delegates needed at the convention to clinch the nomination. Besides the delegate race, how a candidate performs early on is critical to gaining campaign momentum and media attention. That's why the order in which states' votes matters so greatly. It's also why candidates for years have spent so much time in Iowa, from stopping at the state fair to chat up voters while working the storied pork chop grill to talking policy at swanky GOP dinners or tiny town halls deep in corn country. Primarily, voters in later states pay attention to what happened in early states and they react to what they learn, said David Redlosk, a University of Delaware professor and co-author of a book about the Iowa caucuses. This year, Iowa will again hold the first Republican contest, but Biden directed the Democratic National Committee to shake up the party's primary calendar to start in South Carolina, which used to follow Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. South Carolina, where the population is 26% black, has a primary electorate that much more representative of the Democratic Party's diverse coalition than Iowa and New Hampshire, two of the whitest states in the nation. The state also is safer political terrain for Biden, who struggled badly in Iowa and New Hampshire in 2020 before a victory in South Carolina resurrected his campaign. The DNC also voted to put Nevada on the same day as New Hampshire, followed by Georgia and Michigan, other more diverse states next after South Carolina, which votes February the 3rd. But Georgia Republicans refused to move their state's primary date, and New Hampshire opted to push ahead with its primary on January the 23rd anyway. Biden won't be on the ballot, but could still win as a write-in candidate. Iowa Democrats also opted to go ahead with voting on Monday, the same day as Republicans, but they'll do so by mail and say results won't be publicly announced until March, so they comply with party rules letting the other states go earlier. Biden, age 81, is expected to win the Democratic nomination. The president faces token opposition from Minnesota Democratic Representative Dean Phillips and progressive author Marianne Williamson. Meanwhile, Republicans have continued to open with Iowa. Trump, age 77, is the party's overwhelming favorite, though he faces several significant GOP challengers, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, age 45, and former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, age 51. He also has been indicted multiple times, and a trial for one criminal case could begin in the middle of the primary campaign. While their campaign strategies have varied, the GOP candidates know one of the keys to winning over Iowa voters is spending time in person courting them and embracing some of the state's political traditions. DeSantis completed an Iowa campaign milestone by visiting all of its 99 counties. Haley greeted voters at the Iowa State Fair. Trump tossed autographed footballs into the crowd at a fraternity house ahead of a college football game. Winning or losing in Iowa isn't everything. In the earliest contests, candidates are really playing an expectations game. 
In the 1976 caucuses, Carter finished second to those who chose not to commit to any candidate, but it was far better than expected and served to lift his campaign. In 1992, Bill Clinton finished fourth in Iowa, but notched a stronger-than-expected second-place New Hampshire finish, declaring himself the comeback kid. Trump lost Iowa in 2016 to Texas Senator Ted Cruz, but then dominated in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. This year, GOP voters will gather in local schools or other community sites for hours to be part of caucuses, which are party-run events conducted by local officials and volunteers. Voting is open only to registered Republicans. Those who show up, typically a fraction of the state's eligible voters, hear from representatives of the campaigns before making their selections. Trump is hoping for a commanding win, so he looks unstoppable going forward. If he's successful, Iowa can claim to once again hold a central role in U.S. politics and in how the nation chooses a president. And now here's an article entitled, Your Guide to Participating in Iowa Precinct Caucuses. It's written by Tom Barton of the Gazette. Iowa Republicans will gather in schools, churches, and community halls to cast their vote for the presidential nomination and kick off the national primary process on Monday. Iowa Democrats, meanwhile, will hold party-organizing precinct caucuses on the same day as Republicans, but they will express their presidential preference using a new mail-in process and won't announce results until March the 5th. The change came after National Democrats booted the state from their early nominating spot in an effort to redesign the calendar in a way that better represented the party's demographics. The Libertarian Party of Iowa achieved major party status in Iowa after the 2022 election, and it will hold its own organizing caucus January 15th, the same night Republicans and Democrats hold their caucuses. Here's what you need to know about the Iowa caucuses. It's a century-old tradition of Iowans gathering in person in their precincts to discuss and conduct party business, including electing delegates to county conventions, electing precinct representatives to the county central committee, and discussing resolutions that can be shared at county conventions to be included in the state party platform. Every four years during presidential election cycle, this also entails registering their preference as to who should be their party's nominee for president. Caucuses are not primaries, which are state-run elections. Primary elections are conducted like other U.S. elections, at polling places and by secret ballot, held throughout the day and usually also with absentee-slash-mail-in ballots and early voting. Caucuses, by contrast, are meetings run by political parties convened at a specific time, 7 p.m. on Monday, January 15th, where every four years a presidential preference poll is conducted. Since it isn't a traditional election, a candidate's performance in Iowa is often viewed as a test of his or her campaign's organizational strength. The Iowa caucuses begin the process of choosing the party's presidential nominee and serve to winnow a large field to a small group of contenders who have proved they are the most viable candidates. In previous caucuses, winners included... George W. Bush won the 2000 caucuses with 41% of the vote and went on to win the party's nomination and the presidency. Mike Huckabee won the 2008 caucuses with 34.4% of the vote. He lost the party's nomination to John McCain. Rick Santorum narrowly won the 2012 caucuses with 24.56% of the vote. He lost the party's nomination to Mitt Romney. 
Ted Cruz won the 2016 caucuses with 27.6% of the vote. He lost the party's nomination to Donald Trump, who went on to win the presidency. On the Democratic side, John Kerry won the 2004 caucuses with 37.6% of the vote and went on to the party to the party's nomination. Barack Obama won the 2008 caucuses with 37.6% of the vote and went on to win the party's nomination and the presidency. Hillary Clinton narrowly won the 2016 caucuses with 49.84% of the vote. She went on to win the party's nomination but lost the general election to Donald Trump. The 2020 caucuses resulted in a virtual tie too close to call between Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. Neither would go on to win the party's nomination. Republican and Democratic voters will gather at 7 p.m. on January the 15th at designated precinct locations. Libertarians will gather at 6.30 p.m. The Republicans, after conducting a prayer and a Pledge of Allegiance, attendees will elect a permanent precinct caucus chair to run the caucus and a permanent secretary to record caucus results. Before the presidential preference poll, representatives from each presidential campaign can make brief speeches in support of their candidate. Attendees will then cast their vote for president by writing a name on a slip of paper. Those votes are counted and announced to the caucus and reported to the state party. A representative from each campaign is allowed to watch the tabulation. Unlike in past Iowa Democratic caucuses, where Iowans stood in corners of the room to be counted, Republicans keep their choices a secret. Once the voting is over, caucus attendees move on to party business, like electing delegates to the county convention and proposing items for the party platform. A sample caucus night schedule released by the Iowa GOP estimates on average most precinct caucuses will adjourn within an hour and a half, depending on the size of the precinct and length of deliberations. Iowa's 40 delegates to the Republican National Convention will be bound on the first ballot proportionately to the results of the Iowa caucuses, unless only one candidate's name is placed for nomination at the convention. While voters across the country cast ballots for their preferred presidential candidate during the presidential primary season, it's the delegates to the national party conventions who select the presidential nominees for each major party. Much like in the general election, where a candidate needs a majority of votes in the Electoral College to win the White House, candidates need a majority of delegate votes at the convention to win the party's presidential nomination. Iowa Democrats will hold their party organizing caucus on January the 15th and express their choice for president via a mail-in process starting in January. The party's new presidential preference cards will include the names of incumbent President Joe Biden and two long-shot challengers, U.S. Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota and author Marianne Williamson, along with an option to remain uncommitted. Democrats will be able to cast their presidential preference through the mail by requesting a preference card at iowademocrats.org slash caucus. The last day to submit a request is 5 p.m. on February the 19th. Printed request forms must be mailed to the Iowa Democratic Party at 5661 Fleur Drive, Des Moines, Iowa, 50321. Or Democrats may email their request forms to preference card request at iowademocrats.org. Preference cards must be marked by March 5th in order to count. 
results will be announced by party officials later that same day, which is Super Tuesday, when more than a half dozen other states will hold presidential primaries. The National Party's Rules and Bylaws Committee said it would not accept Iowa Democrats' delegate selection plan unless the party ensured that the postmark deadline for mail-in presidential preference cards is March 5th or later, ensuring that Iowa's caucus results couldn't be announced until after the early voting window concludes and other states begin weighing in on Super Tuesday. For questions, call the IDP's helpline at 515 216 3893. Libertarian Party of Iowa Chair Jules Cutler said the party's caucus process will be similar to that of the Republicans, where representatives for each candidate seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination for president will make a brief speech in support of their candidate. Attendees will then cast their vote. Once the voting is over, caucus attendees move on to party business. We are not reinventing the wheel, Cutler said. You nominate vote, conduct party business, and you're done in a half hour to an hour. Any person voting at a precinct caucus must be a registered voter and resident of Iowa and a registered member of the political party living in in the precinct in which they intend to caucus. Individuals may register to vote or change their party affiliation at the caucus. To register to vote in Iowa, you must be a U.S. citizen, be an Iowa resident, be at least 17 years old as long as you will turn 18 on or before Election Day, not be judged mentally incompetent to vote by a court, and not claim the right to vote in any other place. Iowans can register to vote online using the Iowa Department of Transportation's website or by downloading a voter registration form from the Iowa Secretary of State's website, sos.iowa.gov, and mailing the form to their county auditor. Iowans also can register to vote in person on the day of the Iowa caucuses by showing up to their caucus site and bringing documents including ID and proof of residency. Iowans can check their voter registration status and find more information at voterready.iowa.gov slash register to vote. Iowa voters planning to participate in the Iowa caucuses will need to bring a valid form of ID on caucus night, which includes voter identification card, Iowa's driver's license, Iowa non-operative ID, U.S. military or veteran ID, U.S. passport, tribal ID card slash document. Those who plan to register to vote at their precinct location on caucus night also will need to bring the following. A valid form of ID as listed above, a proof of address, for example, residential lease, utility bill, bank statement, paycheck, government check, property tax statement, government document, etc. For Republican and Democratic caucus goers, there's a two-part system for finding where you need to be on caucus night. First, find your regular voting precinct at the Iowa Secretary of State's website, Then, find your caucus site on the Republican Party of Iowa's website or the Iowa Democratic Party's website. The Libertarian Party of Iowa has posted county caucus locations on its website at lpia.org slash caucus. All precincts in a county will meet at the listed location. If your county does not have a location yet, email info at lpia.org. 
caucus sites are subject to change, so Iowans should double-check the website before they head out to caucus. The Republican Party of Iowa said it expects participation in this year's caucus to be on par with 2016, in which a record more than 186,000 Republicans cast their preference for a presidential candidate. The previous two contested cycles in 2012 and 2008 saw turnouts of around 120,000. In other caucus news from Sunday's Don Perel, candidates crisscross state in frigid weather. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley pushed across ice-cold Iowa Saturday to find voters open to an alternative form to former President Donald Trump with just two days before the state's caucus opened the Republican primary calendar. Trump canceled his two in-person rallies Saturday due to a blizzard blanketing much of the state, scheduling two virtual tele-rallies instead. That left DeSantis and Haley, the two strongest candidates of the Republicans competing in Iowa, with the chance to meet voters in person at several sites. Both were planning to finish the day with events in the Mississippi River town of Davenport. Trump is the heavy frontrunner in Monday's caucuses. Perhaps more important than the margin of Trump's expected victory is whether either of his remaining top rivals can claim a clear second-place finish and gain momentum as the race moves forward to New Hampshire and other states. DeSantis, in particular, is under great pressure in Iowa given his campaign's heavy bet on a strong finish in the caucuses. You're going to pack so much more punch on Monday night than in any other election you'll ever be able to participate in, the Florida governor told about 60 voters in Council Bluffs. DeSantis is hoping for more voters like Michael Durham, who a former Trump supporter who braved sub-freezing temperatures to hear the Florida governor and plans to caucus for him Monday night. He's just kind of no-nonsense, said Durham, a 47-year-old from Council Bluffs. Durham praised DeSantis for opening Florida schools during the COVID-19 pandemic and challenging federal power. He is who he is. He doesn't make any apologies for the way he thinks. Other Iowans showed why DeSantis and Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor, still have work to do in their respective final pushes. Courtney Raines, a special education teacher, came to hear Haley on Saturday morning and said she would try to see DeSantis later in the day. I'd like to know how she's going to handle the border crisis and mitigate the racial divide, said Raines, who said she is concerned about the divisiveness she perceives among Americans. Americans for Prosperity, the political arm of the conservative Koch Brothers Network, canvassed the state through the winter storm on Haley's behalf. Patty Parley, a 65-year-old accountant from Urbandale, was among the Iowans who were visited at home Saturday by AFP. But Parley said she is choosing between Trump and DeSantis and likely won't make a decision until Monday night when she will hear the two candidates' representatives make a pitch at her caucus site. That's what the caucuses are all about, as people get to speak for their candidates, Parley said. And we have to keep in mind, this isn't the final election. It goes on from here. Parley said she believes DeSantis has not gotten fair treatment from political media, while Trump has not been treated fairly by prosecutors who have charged him in four separate criminal cases. She said she loved Trump's policies during his administration, but thinks he sometimes acts like a fifth grader. I almost want to vote DeSantis just to say yes, he should get be, he should be getting more support than it seems like he is, Parley said. 
I almost want to vote Trump just to say, we know that all this bullcrap out there is bullcrap. Independents and moderate voters could be notable wildcards Monday. Haley, speaking Saturday in the liberal college town of Iowa City, drew enthusiastic applause when she hit her signature line aimed at raising doubts about Trump without attacking him head-on. Chaos follows him. You know I'm right. We can't defeat Democratic chaos with Republican chaos. It was a line made for an audience that included a number of independents like Julie Slinger, who voted for Trump in 2016, but then for President Joe Biden, a Democrat, in the 2020 general election. He's a disaster waiting to happen, a time bomb, said Slinger, a 57-year-old accountant. Even if you like Trump, he is going to be crippled by this mayhem swirling around him. Haley's appearance in Iowa City, part of the state's most Democratic county, underscores her pitch to more moderate voters. Slinger entered the event undecided. She left committed to Haley. Carol Hinchin, a 30-year-old independent, is considering caucusing with Republicans as well and came to hear DeSantis in Council Bluffs. Hinchin voted for Biden in 2020. She said she could end up supporting him again and will not back Trump. She explained that she is especially interested in candidates' plans for mental health care services, but after DeSantis spoke, she said she was unmoved. Nothing that he talked about resonated with me. Trump, meanwhile, is looking for as wide a margin of victory as possible on Monday, with his campaign aides arguing for months that the former president can become the presumptive nominee early in the primary calendar with big victories that keep DeSantis and Haley from mounting a sustained threat. Trump's advisors have also privately reminded reporters that no Republican presidential candidate has won a contested Iowa caucus by more than 12 points since Bob Dole in 1988. While Trump was delayed returning to the state this and his Saturday rallies canceled, Carrie Lake, the failed Arizona gubernatorial candidate who is now running for Senate, paid a visit to the campaign's Urbandale, Iowa campaign headquarters where dozens of volunteers were gathered making calls. Lake, who grew up in Iowa and is one of Trump's most vocal supporters, made several calls herself after delivering remarks and taking questions from the crowd, which included volunteers from Florida and Texas. The Republican caucus that's going to happen on Monday night is going to send a shockwave. We're going to see huge numbers, she said. After days of storm conditions, Monday's weather is expected to be in the coldest for any caucus day in history, with temperatures falling below zero degrees Fahrenheit when Republicans are supposed to head to their caucus site to hear pitches for the candidates and cast their ballots. Republican Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks was hit from behind Saturday by a semi-trailer on her way to Haley's event in Iowa City, according to fellow GOP Representative Ashley Hinson, who spoke to the crowd in Miller-Meeks' place. Miller-Meeks said in a statement posted on X, formerly Twitter, that she did not require medical attention. Aides from multiple campaigns and longtime Iowa political observers have suggested the weather could sharply depress turnout. Republican caucus turnout peaked at more than 180,000 in 2016, Trump's first campaign. Texas Senator Ted Cruz won the caucuses narrowly that year. Trump's campaign has put considerably more effort this time into building a caucus turnout structure. 
You are listening to the Council of Love's Daily Non-Parel on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There were, are not any obituaries or, or opinions pages in either today's or yesterday's daily nonpareil, so I'll continue with national news. First up, in the Middle East, U.S. says time for transition. Security Council wants Israel to scale back offensive in Gaza. The White House said Sunday it's the right time for Israel to scale back its military offensive in the Gaza Strip as Israeli leaders again vowed to press ahead with their operation against the territory's ruling Hamas militant group. The comments exposed the growing differences between the close allies on the 100th day of the war. Also Sunday, Israeli warplanes struck targets in Lebanon following a Hezbollah missile attack that killed two Israeli civilians, an older woman and her adult son, in northern Israel. The exchange of fire underscored concerns that the Gaza violence could trigger wider fighting across the region. The war in Gaza, launched by Israel Israel in response to the October 7th attack by Hamas, has killed nearly 24,000 Palestinians, devastated vast swaths of Gaza, driven around 85% of the territory's 2.3 million residents from their homes, and pushed a quarter of the population into starvation. Speaking on CBS, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. was speaking to Israel about a transition to low-intensity operations in Gaza. We believe it's the right time for that transition, and we're talking to them about doing that. He said on Face the Nation, Israel launched the offensive after the Hamas attacked, killed some 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took 250 others hostage. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead until Hamas is destroyed and all of the more than 100 hostages still in captivity are freed. The war has sent tensions soaring across the region, with Israel trading fire almost daily with Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group and Iranian-backed militias attacking U.S. targets in Syria and Iraq. In addition, Yemen's Houthi rebels have been targeting international shipping, drawing a wave of U.S. airstrikes last week. Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, said his group won't stop until a ceasefire is in place for Gaza. We are continuing, and our front is inflicting losses on the enemy and putting pressure on displaced people, Nasrallah said in a speech referring to the tens of thousands of Israelis who have fled northern border areas. In other developments, tens of thousands of people in Europe and the Middle East took to the streets Sunday to mark the 100th day of the war. Next, Ukraine lays out peace formula. At annual meeting, a growing number of countries back Zelensky. Leaders of talks on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's peace formula on Sunday said a growing number of countries are working to help set the groundwork for Russia to join one day and admittedly distant goal as the nearly two-year war grinds on and with neither side willing to cede ground. 
The fourth such meeting of National Security Advisors was held in the Swiss town of Davos, where Zelensky is set to attend the World Economic Forum's annual meeting starting Tuesday. He will endeavor to keep up international focus on Ukraine's defense amid eroding support for Kyiv in the West and swelling distractions like conflict in the Middle East. Andriy Yermak, the Ukrainian president's chief of staff, posted photos of the meeting's opening and hailed a good sign that the number of participants in a string of conferences on Zelensky's peace formula was growing, nearly half from Europe, as well as 18 from Asia and 12 from Africa. Countries from the global south are increasingly getting involved in our work. It shows understanding that this European conflict is in fact a challenge for all humanity, he wrote. Zelensky has presented a 10-point peace formula that, among other things, seeks the expulsion of all Russian forces from Ukraine and accountability for war crimes at a time when the two sides are fighting from largely static positions along a roughly 930-mile front line. Such ideas are rejected out of hand by Moscow. Yermak said that if Ukraine's territorial integrity, now violated by Russia, including through illegal annexations, isn't restored, soon other aggressors elsewhere in the world will be able to seize parts of other countries and start staging fake elections there. At a final news conference, Yermak said the purpose of the meeting, the last in a series, was to discuss issues like an eventual Russian withdrawal, a path to justice, environmental security, and ultimately how the war might be declared over. He said that no allies had asked Ukraine to make any compromises, which they know is not acceptable for us. For all Ukrainians, the most important thing is to win this war, he said. Earlier in a statement from the Ukrainian presidency, Yermak said a simple ceasefire wouldn't end Russia's aggression on Ukraine. It's definitely not the path to peace. The Russians do not want peace. They want domination. Co-host Ignacio Casis, the Swiss foreign minister, said 83 delegations were on hand for the talks in Davos. Peace is something that Ukraine needs, he said during a break in the talks Sunday. We are going to do all we can to end this war. The talks aimed to build on previous such closed-door efforts in Denmark, Saudi Arabia, and Malta last summer and fall. Any peace deal naturally will require Russian participation, and Moscow isn't represented in the discussions. The last round in Malta in October involved envoys from 65 countries. Moscow, which hasn't been invited to any of the meetings, has dismissed the initiative as biased. Iceland volcano erupts for second time in a month. This comes from Reykjavik, Iceland. A volcano in southwestern Iceland erupted for the second time in less than a month on Sunday, sending lava snaking toward a nearby community and setting at least one home on fire. The eruption, which began just before 8 a.m. local time, came after authorities evacuated the town of Grindavik following a swarm of small earthquakes, the Icelandic Meteorological Office said. Hours later, a second fissure opened near the edge of town and lava crept toward the homes. We just watch it on the cameras and there's really nothing else we can do, Grindavik's resident Rainier Berg Janssen told Iceland's RUV television. Grindavik is a town of 3,800 people about 30 miles southwest of Reykjavik, Iceland's capital. 
DA Willis defends Trump prosecutor. This comes from Atlanta. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis on Sunday defended the qualifications of a special prosecutor she hired for her case against Donald Trump and others over efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia after a defense lawyer accused Willis of professional impropriety. First, in her first public remarks since the accusation was made in a court filing, Willis offered a vigorous defense for her leadership of the office and pushed back against critics. She was received warmly by the congregation of Big Bethel AME Church as she spoke at a service a day before the holiday honoring the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Willis thanked leaders of the historically black church in Atlanta who didn't care what they said about me and told her the invite was still good to speak. Denmark's Prime Minister proclaimed Frederick X as king on Sunday after his mother, Queen Margaret II, age 83, formally signed her abdication with massive crowds turning out to rejoice in the throne passing from a beloved monarch to her popular son. North Korea on Monday claimed it flight-tested a new solid-fuel intermediate-range missile tipped with a hypersonic warhead as it pursues more powerful, harder-to-detect weapons designed to strike remote U.S. targets in the region. Thousands of people gathered in Germany on Sunday for demonstrations against the far right, among them Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his foreign minister following a report that extremists recently met to discuss the deportation of millions of immigrants. Five people were found dead Sunday in another maritime drama involving migrants trying to cross the dangerous English Channel from northern France, authorities said. The deaths and the rescue of dozens of other people highlighted the perils of migrant crossings from France to Britain. Nicaragua's Government said Sunday it released a prominent Catholic bishop and 18 other clergy members imprisoned in a crackdown by President Daniel Ortega and handed them over to Vatican authorities. Bishop Rolando Alvarez and the other clergy were jailed more than a year ago. And a small plane carrying three people crashed in a remote wooded area of Massachusetts on Sunday morning, authorities said. Police reported multiple fatalities. This article from Des Moines, Iowa, Principal Dies of Injuries from School Shooting. An Iowa principal who put himself in harm's way to protect students during a school shooting earlier this month died Sunday, a funeral home confirmed. Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory confirmed the death of Perry High School principal Dan Marburger after the family announced it on a GoFundMe page. Marburger was critically injured during the January 4th attack, which began in the school's cafeteria as students were gathering for breakfast before class. An 11-year-old middle school student was killed in the shooting, and six other people were injured. The 17-year-old student who opened fire also died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. The day after the shooting, the State Department of Public Safety said Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. News of Marburger's death was first posted on a GoFundMe page for his family. The post by Marburger's wife, Elizabeth, said he died at about 8 a.m. Sunday and said, Dan lost his battle. He fought hard and gave us 10 days that we will treasure forever. 
The news that Marburger died triggered a flood of support on the Perry Facebook page with nearly 200 people posting condolences within the first hour after it was posted. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds offered her condolences. Our entire state is devastated by the news of Dan Marburger's death, she said in a statement Sunday. Congress leaders work on stopgap budget bill. Congressional leaders are preparing a stopgap bill to keep the federal government running into March and avoid a partial shutdown this week. The temporary measure will run to March 1st for some federal agencies whose approved funds are set to run out Friday and extend the remainder of government operations to March 8th. That's according to a person familiar with the situation and granted anonymity to discuss it. The stopgap bill is expected to be released Sunday. House Speaker Mike Johnson, a representative from Louisiana in recent days, faced pressure from his hard right flank to jettison a recent $1.66 trillion bipartisan spending deal with Senate Democrats. Some hard right members raised the threat of a motion to oust Johnson over the deal. The bill would need Democratic support to pass the narrowly divided House. And two U.S. Navy SEALs missing off Somalia. Two U.S. Navy SEALs are missing after conducting a nighttime boarding mission Thursday off the coast of Somalia, according to three U.S. officials who spoke on condition of anonymity. The SEALs were on an interdiction mission, climbing up a vessel when one got knocked off by high waves. Under protocol, when one SEAL is overtaken, the next jumps in after them. The mission was not related to the U.S. and international mission to protect commercial vessels in the Red Sea or retaliatory strikes in Yemen, an official said Saturday. U.S. Central Command said Saturday that search and rescue operations are ongoing, but it would not release additional information on the incident until the personnel recovery mission is complete. The sailors were forward deployed to the U.S. 5th Fleet area of operations supporting a wide variety of missions. Now let's move over to the sports page and top story there. Green Bay stuns Dallas. Detroit snaps nine-game skid, wins first playoff game in 32 years. Jordan Love threw for three touchdowns, Aaron Jones ran for three more, and Darnell Savage returned an interception 64 yards for a score as the Green Bay Packers handed the Dallas Cowboys their first home loss since the 2022 opener in a 48-32 wildcard stunner on Sunday. Romeo Dobbs had a career-high 151 yards receiving a week after being hospitalized with a chest injury as the Packers won Love's postseason debut after finishing the regular season 6-2 to grab the NFL's final playoff spot. We came in here with a mindset of we're going to dominate, Love said. A lot of people were counting us out and we didn't care about that. Green Bay will visit top-seeded San Francisco in the divisional round next weekend. Dak Prescott threw two interceptions before three mostly empty TD passes in another playoff flop for him and the number 2 seeded Cowboys. Dallas had won its previous 16 regular season home games, but now has allowed the most points in a game in the club's postseason history. The previous high was 38. The Cowboys, who haven't reached an NFC championship since the most recent of their five Super Bowl titles 28 years ago, didn't trail by more than eight points at AT&T Stadium this season before falling behind 27-0 in the first half. The loss will raise questions about the future of Dallas coach Mike McCarthy 
after the Cowboys lost their playoff opener at home for the second time in three postseasons under the former Green Bay coach. Lions 24, Rams 23. Jared Goff threw for a touchdown and completed a game-sealing first down against the team that cast him away, and Detroit won a playoff game for the first time in 32 years, beating Matthew Stafford and visiting Los Angeles. The Lions ended a nine-game playoff skid, the longest in NFL history, that dated to a win over Dallas on January the 5th, 1992. They lost a home playoff game two years later and hadn't hosted one since. The Rams had a chance to take the lead late in the fourth quarter, but Detroit's defense held. A holding penalty pushed Los Angeles out of field goal range, and Stafford, the Lions' longtime quarterback, threw incomplete on fourth down. Bills fans helping dig out stadium in Buffalo. With snow falling at a rate of two inches per hour, a group of about 85 people tried to dig out the Buffalo Bills stadium in Orchard Park, New York, on Sunday. The Bills' playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers was postponed to Monday due to lake-effect storm that was expected to drop one to three feet of snow in the area. The Bills paid snow shovelers $20 an hour, but one person who participated, Logan Esrich, said the work at Highmark Stadium was nearly impossible. The storm was expected to taper off Sunday night, allowing time to clear roads and prepare the stadium for the game. Mayfield focused on Eagles, not future. A rejuvenated Baker Mayfield said he's focused on trying to beat the Philadelphia Eagles, not the future of a career he's revived by leading the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the NFL playoffs. The number one overall pick from the 2018 draft arguably has had his best season, guiding the Bucs to a third straight division title and a matchup against the Eagles. Since joining Tampa Bay a one, on a one-year, $4 million contract last March, Mayfield has positioned himself for a possible long-term deal with the Bucks on or perhaps another club. And Saturday's AFC wildcard playoff game between the Dolphins and Chiefs set a record for the most-watched event on a streaming service, averaging 23 million viewers on Peacock, NFL Plus, and on NBC affiliates in Kansas City and Miami. In college football, Michigan's McCarthy skipping senior season for NFL Draft. J.J. McCarthy, Michigan's national championship-winning quarterback, is skipping his senior season to enter the NFL Draft. McCarthy made the announcement Sunday, a day after being begged to stay. The decision was not easy, and how could it be? I love my teammates, I love my coaches, and I love it here in Ann Arbor, he wrote on his social media accounts. Jim Harbaugh might be the next to go. Harbaugh will meet with the Los Angeles Chargers about their head coach vacancy this week, a person familiar with the situation told the Associated Press. The person spoke to a, the AP on condition of anonymity Sunday because the person wasn't at liberty to publicly discuss personnel moves. And Washington hires Fish. Washington hired Arizona's Jed Fish to succeed Kalen DeBoer as the next coach of the Huskies on Sunday. A person familiar with the deal told AP that Fish had agreed to a seven-year contract that will pay him an average of $7.75 million annually. Less than a week after playing for the national championship, the Huskies moved quickly to fill the vacancy created when DeBoer left for Alabama on Friday. 
DeBoer's contract called for a $12 million buyout paid to Washington if he left, and it will cost the school $5.5 million to hire Fish, the person said. In men's college basketball, Young, Reese, lead Maryland. Terrapin's victory over Illini caps bad week for AP Top 10 teams. Jameer Young scored 28 points, and Julian Reese had 20 points and 11 rebounds to lead Maryland to a 76-67 victory over number 10 Illinois, the 10th time this week a team ranked in the top 10 of the AP poll has lost. Maryland outscored Illinois 39-28 in the second half, taking the lead for good on a dunk by Reese with 15 minutes and 32 seconds to go that made it 47-46. The Terrapins, who were eight-and-a-half-point underdogs, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, won a road Big Ten game for the first time this season. Marcus Damask scored 26 points for Illinois, and Luke Good had 13. Coleman Hawkins, who had scored in double figures in seven straight games for the Illini, fouled out with two minutes and 50 seconds left. He had eight points and seven rebounds. The Illini shot 22.5% from the field in the second half. A jumper by Damask got Illinois within 68-65 with 1 minute and 9 seconds to go, but Maryland responded with a 6-0 run to put the game away. Illinois led 39-37 at halftime thanks to Dane Danja's scoring 7 straight points in the final 1 minute and 28 seconds. Those were his only points of the game. Illinois is... Three and two in five games without star Terrence Shannon Jr., who has been suspended by the university because he's facing a rape charge in Lawrence, Kansas. Shannon sought a temporary restraining order Friday in U.S. District Court in Springfield that, if granted, would force the university to reinstate him to the team. Judge Colleen Lawless promised to rule in an expedient manner. Shannon will arraign on the rape charge on January the 18th in Lawrence. The trial isn't expected to begin until June. Number four, UConn 80, Georgetown 67. Alex Caraban tied a career high with 26 points, and Connecticut made its case to be considered the nation's top team with a home win over Georgetown. The Huskies won their fifth straight game, all without starting center Donovan Klingen, who remained sidelined with a right foot injury. Supreme Cook led the Hoyas with 18 points and 13 rebounds. Number 13, Memphis, 112, Wichita State, 86. Jaquan Walton and Javon Quinterly scored 23 points apiece to lead Memphis past host Wichita State for its 10th consecutive win. The Tigers recorded their most points this season, set a program record with 19 three-pointers, and shot a season-high 65% from the floor. Colby Rogers led the Shockers with 20 points. And number 24, Florida Atlantic 86, UAB 73. John L. Davis scored 30 points. Vladislav Golden added 18, and Florida Atlantic used a big first half to fuel a victory over visiting UAB. It was the third 30-point effort of Davis's career, and two of those have come against the Blazers. UAB had a six-game winning streak snapped. Here's another college men's basketball article. It's entitled, Number One at Being Number One. Kentucky is all-time top team through 75 storied years of AP Top 25 polls. 
Sustained excellence is difficult to achieve in any sport. It takes hiring the right coaches year after year, a constant stream of great players to replace those that depart. It takes luck, to be sure, but also passionate fans, elite facilities, proper marketing, and the flexibility to adapt to the times. In college basketball, those that get the mixture right just might land atop the AP Top 25. Since the Associated Press began ranking teams in January 1949, when St. Louis was installed at number one, many schools have laid claim to the crown. Some fell by the wayside, replaced by others that climbed the venerable pole. But through the vast changes that have transformed college basketball and more than 1,200 poles that have tried to make sense of it all, one thing has remained constant. Kentucky is usually somewhere near the top. To celebrate this month's 75th anniversary of the Top 25, the AP reviewed every poll to determine the all-time number one, and the Wildcats, the winningest program in college basketball, narrowly edged North Carolina for the top of the heap. When I got here, current Kentucky coach John Calipari recalled, it was just knowing that it matters in this state. The fans are incredibly engaged. There were people who knew more about our recruiting than I did. That's when you realize this is different. It's been that way ever since Adolf Rupp, the Kansas-born farm boy who became the Baron of the Bluegrass, built the Wildcats into a perennial power over 42 seasons starting in 1930. They eventually supplanted St. Louis at number one that first season and have rarely strayed too far over the past 75 years. So when teams were awarded points based on where they landed on each ballot, just as they are in the weekly rankings today, Kentucky ended up number one with 17,852 points through last season. The Tar Heels has 17,268, while Duke, Kansas, and UCLA were next. They all have an awesome following. They all recruit excellence, but it all goes back to the players, said current St. John's coach Rick Patino, who won national championships at both Kentucky and Louisville, which came in at number six on the all-time list. At Kentucky, Patino said, every year you can get a great player from Dan Issel to Pat Riley on down. Arizona was seventh on the all-time list, followed by Indiana, Syracuse, and Michigan State rounding out the top ten. The list is not intended to crown the greatest college basketball program because greatness can be measured in different ways. Duke has been the most dominant program over the past three decades. Kansas is considered the cradle of coaches, laying claim in part to not only Rupp and Calipari, but North Carolina's Dean Smith and current coach Bill Self, and UCLA has the most national championships with 11. And don't forget that the final AP poll each season is released before the NCAA tournament. Rather, the AP's all-time top 25 is a measure of sustained excellence as reflected by generations of voters, men and women, who have covered the sport and attempted to order the most deserving teams on their weekly ballots. Did voters get it right over all those years? Patino thinks so, as do many coaches surveyed by the AP in recent months. The AP poll is the only one that everybody has a lot of respect for, said Tom Izzo, whose four decades as an assistant and head coach at Michigan State helped land the Spartans in the top ten. I think to do something like that means you've been consistent over 75 years, and a lot of those years I wasn't alive, but a lot of those years I was a part of it. Kentucky has appeared in more than 75% of AP polls, while Duke has been number one more than any other program. 
I think the poll got it right, said ESPN analyst Dick Vitale, a longtime AP voter. The voters take it seriously and make sure the most deserving teams are ranked. There's a reason those teams are called the Blue Bloods, and this lends credence to that. There have been 14 teams that were wire-to-wire number one, including Gonzaga, during the 2020-2021 season, perhaps best remembered for the COVID-19 pandemic. The Bulldogs' perfect season ended against Baylor in the national title game. Half of those were wire-to-wire teams, went on to win the title. Bill Russell in San Francisco in 1956, John Wooden's teams at UCLA in 67, 69, 72, and 73, Indiana in 1976, the last team to finish a season unbeaten, and the Duke team in 1992 that needed a heroic shot from Christian Leitner to beat Kentucky in the NCAA tournament, then toppled Michigan for the title. Three other wire-to-wire number ones had perfect seasons end in the tourney, Ohio State in 1961, UNLV in 1991, and Kentucky in 2015. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.